is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. My guest today is an acclaimed actor, director and writer who has entertained audiences with his wit, cheekiness and a very healthy dose of irreverence. Jonathan Biggins has played Peter Sellers, appeared in The Mikado and directed Australian productions of Avenue Q and Noises Off. But perhaps his most well-known work is in what I might call hardcore political satire as one of the brains behind and a performer in The Wharf Review, which has been going strong since 2000. And The Wharf Review is back, playing at the Seymour Centre until the 23rd of December for their new show, Looking for Albanese. And I, for one, don't need to look very far as Jonathan Biggins joins me now. Jonathan Biggins, a warm welcome to MBS Fine Music Sydney. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Well, it's, it's great that our taste for political satire clearly has not been sated, given that you've been creating this show for 20 years and people still want more. Is it something you find yourself writing and building all year, so basically since the day the previous show ended? Well, this year in particular, because we um, toured after the Sydney season, we didn't finish till April, and then we had to sort of start thinking of the next one in May or June, and I thought, surely this is Groundhog Day with Daylight Saving. Um, (laughs) It does come around so regularly, but we've built up such an audience over the years, and it's a a funny thing. It's like um, the demographic. People always say, oh, your audience is quite old. I say, they've been exactly the same age for 22 (laughs) years. The conveyor belt goes along, some drop off, and then (laughs) then the new ones come. Well, as long as new ones are coming along. Mm, And I'm sure it's the same with um, 2MBS. Yeah. Uh, The demographic largely remains the same over 50 years. Yeah. Um, And that's just one of the things, I think, the phenomenon of live theatre, that people come to it at a time when they're ready, when they've got the money, when they've got the... They don't have to have babysitters. Mm. Uh, And we find our audience are are much more politically savvy um, because they just, you know, read more. Uh, Having said that, it must be said that we are skewing slightly younger, and I think there is a, a greater engagement with satire at a younger, uh, younger age group now. You know, people say, oh, young people don't care about politics. That's not true. Not they, true at all. No, not true at all. Uh, uh, they do. I, I think sometimes they struggle with some of our references. I mean, you know, uh, the genres of music might be a little dated for them. But that's funny because I, when I was watching, you know, the Gillies Report and all that sort of stuff back in back in the eighties, mm. yes, I didn't know a lot of those songs, but I came to know them because well, exactly. of their inclusion in things like this. Exactly, and I think this is, you know, some people make the mistake of saying, "Oh, you know, we can't do anything because if people don't know it, they won't relate to it." Well, that's not true. You can be relevant without necessarily having to be topical or up to the minute. It's like when people try to update Shakespeare or do whatever and, and adapt it so people can understand it. You think, well, no. Don't underestimate your audience. They're fully mm. capable of understanding it. And what was relevant then is equally relevant now. In political satire, it's a slightly more <laughs> tighter time frame. It is a time uh, Saturday, frame. Satire is what closes on Saturday night, and as um, some famous producer said on Broadway. Um, but you do have to keep it, you know, up fairly up to the minute. But we've kind of morphed into a – it's more a year in review Yes. Rather than, and you the just have to, review, yeah. you put in a couple of, you know, things that happened that day and people think, wow, they wrote the whole thing today. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yes. So, of course, the show is literally different every night. It evolves, but um, we've got to the point where we don't want to do too much rehearsal. So, you know, oh, yes. we try to keep as much of it, um, give it a shelf life. Although we did, unfortunately, fall prey to events this year. We had pre-recorded a, a, a video with the Queen oh. and Paddington Bear who she thought was Paddington Bear, but was actually Prince Charles. But that um, has gone to God. 
as uh, has the Queen. As has the Queen. Well, mm. something uh, to to dig out, I think, in future, maybe. Well, it, it, it has paved the way for King Charles III. It has. Which is quite fun to do. Mm. I dare say. Mm. <laughs> I dare say. So you've already kind of had, if, if I may uh, call it, an out-of-town tryout. The out-of-town tryout, yes, in our <laughs> spiritual home, Canberra. Yes. Uh, unfortunately opening on budget night, which is not good timing on the budget's part. And we no, did say, Very thoughtless of them. Well, very thoughtless, because they all had to be there. And you think, oh, come on, you could miss it, couldn't you? Um, but no. Uh, and normally, I mean, Canberra's a great place to open because it is such a political town. Yeah. And they all know, every, they get every joke. And all the staff has come in the press gallery. But uh, unfortunately, this time, they came in sort of in the second week. We did have Jackie Lambie and Tammy Tyrrell coming along. Mm-hmm. And they very kindly sent her... Jackie sent a handwritten card to Mandy Bishop, who was in the show playing Jackie Lambie, saying you can't beat a good laugh. So she's got a good sense of humour. Good for her. Have Mm. you ever found yourself looking out into the the dim audience and seeing that's the person you are impersonating? Yes, I remember we were doing a big sequence about Barry O'Farrell. Something to do with a bottle of wine? No, no, no. This was before that, just when he'd been elected. It was a sort of Wild West sequence. He was the new sheriff in town. Uh, He was thoroughly enjoying it. His wife, not so much. Ah. Um, but we've had a lot of people. One time Drew was playing Michelle Grattan in thick bottle glasses and a terrible wig and it was not the most flattering of portraits. He couldn't see anything out of it, but I could see, sitting dead centre, second row, Michelle Grattan. <laughs> but she had a good sense of humour too. Well, I think you need to when you're, if you're going to go along to a show like that and yes. uh, potentially be in it, I think uh, yes. you have to be ready. Mm. Although fans of Sky After Dark might not take so kindly to me being one of their leading ladies, shall ah. we say. But I'll leave that there. They can come along and discover it. Well, that brings me along to another point, which is to do with uh, political position. Because, of course, a show like this, to be successful, can't have a political position per se, even if you're skewering particular policies. Is that a no. fine, difficult line to walk? It is. Well, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time someone said, oh, you've got to be more cutting, you've got to be more... And you think, well, no, the success of it is actually that it is done without malice. Mm. Uh, and we tend to target conservative side of politics largely because the conservative side of politics have been the dominant force over the last 22 years. I mean, the Labor's only been in for five of those 22, I think. Mm. Um, We've seen off seven prime ministers, and we do have to be neutral, and we do have to have a spray at everyone. In fact, we do the Greens this year as as the Wiggles, and we were being booed booed by a humorless Green. Oh. Who would have thought such a thing would exist? <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yes, yeah, she didn't take kindly to it, so she booed it. And I thought, well, that's a bit rich. But then on the other hand, for example, we've got 100 people coming from the Australia Club. Uh, and you think, well, if that bastion of conservatism can come and enjoy the show. And they don't always agree with it, but I think that's also what defines Australia as opposed to what's happening around the world, and particularly in America. You know, it's great that we have an independent electoral commission we have um, preferential voting and we have compulsory voting. So you can get a result like the last election where it wasn't really clear-cut, you know, six teals. I mean, that's extraordinary, the number of independents. Mm. The Greens almost holding the balance of power in the Senate. And that, a lot of lower house seats as well. Yeah, I mean. four lower house mm. seats. That, that, that to me is a healthy democracy. Mm. And we have to be able to find common ground. I mean, someone famously said 30% of people will agree with you. of people will never agree with you. It's the other 40% you've got to worry about. And they're the ones you have to win over. And I think that is the way, we're the third way of political (laughs) political satire. Um, You know, we can be cutting and and cruel-ish, 
But as I say, if it's done without malice and anyone can laugh at it, mm. unless they're extreme, but they're not going to come if they're extreme. Uh, unless, I think they that's to, unless they're coming to boo. <laughs> unless they're coming to boo. No, I think she got surprised. She probably thought, oh, you know, She'll inner start. west bleeding heart lefties, theatre loveys, they won't be nasty to the nice old greens, will they? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, I think we have to have your first choice of music. Yes. Now. And what have you got for us first? Uh, this is a piece by Luke Howard, um, who is an Australian jazz pianist. I, I'm very fond of um, the Luke Howard trio. But this is just him with a bass player, Janos Brunil, and it's a piece called Spur. Um, and I heard it somewhere, and I, t- I just think it's it's a really classic exercise in um, shifting the modalities of keys. And when you hear it, and it just moves around, and it, to me, it's extremely cool. Luke Howard with bass player Janos Brunil for Luke Howard's Spur. Or is it Spear? Um, that was the choice of my guest in conversation. Well, I always thought it was S P U R, but now I see it's S P I R. It is on the track listing. So is that Spear? Could be. It could be no. pronounced Spear. Written Spear, pronounced Spear. It's not a tribute to Albert Spear by any chance. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I, no, maybe no, not. I don't think Less so. so. Music is so important. 
important, as you sort of touched on before, in political satire. Well, in our brand of it, yes. In well, review. all brands of it. In reviewing that sort of review, it's uh, always been... Well, not always. I mean, you know, satirists like Stephen Colbert and um, John Stewart not and true. Peter yeah. Cook and uh, those sort of people. Well, Peter Cook actually, did, they did use music, but not all political satire has music. But review traditionally does. Mm. And that's the beauty of review is that if there's something you're not that, you know, thrilled about it'll be over in five minutes and there's something else on yeah so it's a very uh moving forward going sort of thing and it allows us with um phil scott's extraordinary musical direction and he has a very funny story of being a volunteer at 2mbs when it was 2mbs fm in the old old days well it is 2mbs fm now again oh is it 2mbs fine music sydney oh fine music fm i see i get the connection (laughs) Um, and uh, I think he was on the midnight to dawn shift. Oh. And he'd been at home and he'd fallen asleep watching a movie and they rang him saying, quickly, you've got to get into the studio. And it was in the days of um, LPs, of course, yeah. vinyl. And in those days, I think you provided your own. So he grabbed it. He's a very serious music collector. Grabbed a, <laughs> a few, put one on, got to the studio, put one on, woke up at six o'clock with it going, <laughs> and no one had rung in. They'd had five hours of a needle going like that. Well, it was a very avant-garde piece of music. Very avant-garde, yes. John Cage's five hours, 45 minutes. minutes. (laughs) Well, if you ever can uh, hack into his iPhone, you should uh, set his alarm to be that that sound of a... Didn't have iPhones in those days. No, I I suspect not. So I'm fascinated to know how you got into this sort of gig. I mean, were you a a troublemaker at school or or were you the goody two-shoes? Oh, no, I was a bit of a class clown um, and I did a lot of debating. Uh, uh, Newcastle Boys High, well, I think we were the state champions in... For the period you were there. <laughs> yeah, well, in 1977, I think we won, won the David Verco Cup and we were runners-up in the Hume Barber. Um, so we were very, uh, very keen debater. And uh, I went to Young People's Theatre, which is uh, a Young People's Theatre in Newcastle where I grew up. Uh, and that gave me a very sort of solid grounding in traditional theatre. But getting into the satire, Drew Phil and I met when we did a show called The Dingo Principle on the ABC in 1987. Uh, and then we did Three Men and a Baby Grand in 1990, 91, 92. Uh, and we've done sort of, you know, lots of different things over the years. But in 2000, we started doing these reviews for the Sydney Theatre Company. And it was Robin Nevin who actually said, well, I think we want more political satire. Uh, and it was sort of pushed in that direction and it's stayed that way ever since. And it's a great idea because like Roy and HG do with sport, which is essentially the same, but the characters change. Politics is essentially the same, but the characters change. So there's a, there's a never-ending sort of supply of, of material to talk about. Mm. Uh, and I wish I had a dollar for every time someone said, oh, you got no shortage of material this year. Um, But the depressing thing about doing political satire, apart from the fact you have to read the newspapers every day, is that not much actually changes. I mean, Margaret Thatcher talked about climate change for the United Nations in 1982 or 83. She later denied it, but it's been around for that long. Nothing's been done. I mean, Tampa was 2001. We've still got, you know, similar problems. Uh, So many issues just get kicked along the road. I think it's getting more and more difficult uh, for politicians to think long-term because they're constantly fighting this battle of short-termism, which the 24-hour media cycle has just exacerbated, and social media has made democracy almost unworkable. Um, Because democracy is not everyone having a go 24 hours a day. 
parliamentary democracy, you elect someone, you say, well, we give you three years. If it doesn't work out, we'll change it. Um, so I think it's very, very difficult for politicians now. Always has been. Um, but Malcolm Fraser once said, politics should not be on the front page of the newspaper. And I kind of agree with him, and I think he, he had a point. Um, because it doesn't allow them to do anything. And yes, you do need investigative journalism, and you do need to find out when things are going wrong, and there should be transparency and openness in government, but I wouldn't want to be a politician. No. No. You were never, you were never tempted. No. Could, well, having a family too, I just didn't want to do it to them. No, especially not going to Canberra, I guess, would be, would be hard. It's just the work. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, think if you're a West Australian member. You know, four and a half hour flight every time, just to get there and back. That I think it's it's very very difficult. Yeah, it's amazing. Some of them do it for as long as they do. Actually, mm. uh, you mentioned the dingo principle there, and I mean that was part of a one of a long series of programs that the ABC mm. ran. You know, the, I mentioned the Gillies report before, and I think there were a few ones after the, the dingo principle as well. They were uh, always Andrew called Denton different. Came in, yeah, the money or the gun, yeah. But, um, and- and that kind of took us into the party 90s. machine, but yeah. it, but it's also what Robin Nevin was doing and what you guys were doing in two thousand was because that program had kind of disappeared from. The yes, ABC. I think she thought. I mean, she'd always wanted to do some sort of political satire, and that that stemmed from when Max Gillies used to do shows at Kinsella's, and they were very very popular. And she she just thought, you know, there's, there wasn't much satire on television. The Chaser hadn't started at that point. Um, but the good thing about doing it in the theatre is that you can, you know do these sort of musical things. It can be much more, and you can be much more immediate. Mm. I mean, we were, one time we went to Canberra and we arrived on the Monday night and Malcolm Turnbull rolled Tony Abbott and we were opening the next night. So we had to stay up half the night rewriting vast chunks of the show to open on the Tuesday night. Yeah, because even though it had only happened in the last 24 hours, it would actually look a bit ridiculous if your well, material you was more than 24 hours. Well, you couldn't still do it with Tony Abbott the leader, so it has to change. Yes. Some things has to change. Yeah. I mean, we sweated for 10 days when the um, independents were deciding whether to go with Julia. Oh, you were actually doing the show at the time? Yeah, yeah. So we've been through every leadership challenge, every, um, every time someone got rolled or done, uh, we seem to have been performing. And so we have changed things quite a bit over the time. But you, you don't, I mean, sometimes you just have to put something in the past tense. Does the trick. <laughs> it does the trick. Solves every problem. Well, uh, another piece of music now, uh, and a different genre from our, our jazz uh, piano from before. What's this one? Uh, this is the Respighi, uh, and it's a Botticelli triptych. I was having a, a trip in Tasmania with my two, my twin daughters uh, earlier this year, a belated 21st birthday present because COVID knocked that on the head, and the TSO were playing in Hobart, and we thought, well, let's go. And we walked in and I could hear, you know, when musicians practice riffs and things before the thing, someone doing the Palestrina, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, I think it's Palestrina. I thought, what the hell's this? And I'd never heard the piece and then I heard it and it's just exquisite.
the second movement of Respighi's Botticelli Triptych Orchestre Philharmonique Royale de Liège, conducted by John Neschling. The choice of my guest in conversation today, the actor, director, writer, satirist, Jonathan Biggins. He is in the latest version of The Wharf Review, which is back at the Seymour Centre until the 23rd of December, and they are looking for Albanese. Do those titles, Jonathan, come easy? Sometimes yes and sometimes no. I think my favourite one was... um well, there were two. They're waiting for Garno, I quite like. Yeah. And we're still waiting for Garno. But my one of my favourites was someone that actually a friend of Phil's came up with, um, Sunday in Iraq with George. <laughs> That's a very good one. <laughs> that was pretty good. I liked uh, on your website, Pennies from Kevin. Pennies from Kevin, yes. Um, debt-defying acts. That was quite fun. Um, my One of my daughters always wants to call it four, four below the average, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I want to get back to the dingo principle, if I may, because that was actually part of important part of my eighties um, mm. upbringing. I, I was, you know, teenager at the time, and and uh, and lapped it up every week. Perhaps more so than the Gillies report. Why was that change? Why did that change happen with Max Gillies sort of going? Well, I think Max had just sort of stepped back from doing television. Mm. Um, he was doing more live stuff, I think. Um, but Patrick Cook and Phil Scott, who had worked on the Gillies report, they kept. Going and it was actually it came out of Sydney, not Melbourne, because all the Gilly stuff. But Ted Robinson was the director uh, of Gillies and of the Dingo Principle, and he just wanted to sort of continue that tradition. Uh, and they wanted to make it musical, so they had Phil. But well, I mean, we used to have these extraordinary recording sessions in, up in Forbes Street in the old ABC studios. And I think at one point the West Australian Symphony Orchestra recorded something for us because they were still under the umbrella of the ABC. So we were doing a, a, an opera sequence or something, and I think it might have been um, Aida, and the tempo was so slow, and Phil was saying, um, it's, it's satire, you know, the lyrics, they're, they're going to get the joke long before. No, nah, that's how it goes. This is how it goes. I'm not doing it any faster. Conductor refused to take it <laughs> really? at any greater tempo. Um, but we had, you know, great musicians, and they'd go and record this stuff live. It, it, it was, And the ABC, had they had a wardrobe department and a costume department. All that's gone. Yeah, it was just all there. You it's all gone. And you could make, uh, and that was the famous one where I was playing the Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, and uh, the Iranians cancelled the wheat trade and they cancelled the live sheep trade. They expelled the diplomats from Tehran. It was quite serious. And it was around about the same time as the first fatwa was issued on a German comedian. So we were quite tense. And it was extraordinary that satire had that kind of potential to. Um, derail things yes. in that way because we thought oh this is all pretty harmless but no they they took great offense yes never let it be said that you don't have any influence no well i always like just Pete, not peter, over the people you want to have influence over peter cook's comment i think is is, is some set up the best when he opened the establishment club in the 50s in london which is a you know a satirical club he said i hope this can do uh what the great weimar cabarets did to stop the rise of hitler and the outbreak of the second world war <laughs> Good point, alas. Uh, but I, I looked at some of those clips from the Dingo Principle uh, last night in preparation for this interview, and you wouldn't be able to do some of that now, would you? Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. no. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, someone wrote of, of the review in Canberra, uh, one of the critics said you wouldn't be able to put this on TV. Um, uh, and I, Probably because it's got three old white guys in it, but um, I don't think so. I think... I mean, my memory is. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, I know there's. I know the piece you mean. You're talking yes. about the Macardo. I'm, talking, I'm sort of talking. Oh, I was Mikado. watching the Macardo piece, which yeah, I actually loved the Macardo. Well, the Macardo. I would argue. I would argue that the Macardo actually has nothing to do with Japan. 
It's a satire of Britain. So I think people who um, object to the Mikado being done by non-Japanese people have kind of missed the point. But there were other things. I do remember, I think we might have done something about Desmond Tutu that you would never in a pink mm. fit do. Now. Because there are things that you could you would do in the 80s, where, which was, for want of a better description, yellow face, black face, etc., which you just... Comedians, well, com- we even didn't comedians do yellow can't face and, and the Mikado wears white oh. face. Yes, Kabuki. but yeah, but you were all talking. Uh, you, there are a number of yes. you doing. You probably um, wouldn't do that now. It's just an certain expressions, point, if I can, if I can put it that way. Yes, uh, I mean one of the reasons we left the STC was that they started to say, "Oh, you can't do that." And there was, I think, we were doing a sketch about Xi Jinping and Kim Jong Un, two of the most powerful men in the world. One would have to argue. Uh, and we were, we were playing them. We weren't yellow-facing or doing anything like that. We were just playing them. No, no, you can't do that. It, uh, it has to be a non-Caucasian actor. And I, f- I should have said, you mean a Han Chinese and a North Korean specifically or just anyone, you know, anyone who looks vaguely Asian? Will that do for you? Um, and I thought, this surely misses the point of satire. Um, you should be able to do something about th- these sort of uh, influential figures. And it should be up to the artists anyway to decide what is acceptable and what is not. And we have a very sensitive barometer to these things and we wouldn't do it. And we've never had any complaints from any audience member about any of that sort of stuff. So we are very aware of it. But at the same time, as satirists, you've kind of try and push the envelope a bit. And, I mean, I don't like the terms political correctness and I hate the term woke, but those social phenomenon are worthy of satire, in my opinion. However, it's extremely difficult to do it because no one has the guts to do it because the court of public or the Colosseum of public opinion with its thumb up and thumb down, gee, Mm. haven't we advanced so far since the Romans, um, is very powerful. And you you cross it at your peril. But we should be. So you are self-centering? I um, hate to say it, but we are. Mm. We do. Not, Not... I mean, I agree with most of what I agree with. Uh, and and at times you think, well, there's no point in making that joke because it's not saying anything and, and it's just a cheap joke that we would have done in the past, but we don't need to do it now. But at the same time, these are social forces that are being unleashed to a lot of people's confusion. But like all pendulums, it will swing back mm. uh, and it had to be done. I mean, but I think you could argue a case that those movements are worthy of satire as well. So we've got a piece in the show this year called Oh, What a Culture War, um, where we do look at that. Mm. And it's it's interesting that the culture wars are fought by the extremes on both sides. It's that 30% and the 30% and the 40 in the middle going, what the hell? What are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah, what are you talking about? Why are we obsessing about this? Um, and yes, it's very important for the mm. people who it does affect directly or indirectly, but sometimes it's important, I think, uh, given the nature of modern media, maybe out of proportion to the importance that it has for the vast majority of the population. Um, having said that, everything that you know activists are pushing for, I thoroughly agree with. Um, but at the same time, we can have a joke about it as well. But I suppose going back to that um, SEC thing with not being able to play Xi Jinping and... and Look, Kim I can Jong-un. understand where they were coming from. Yes, but I suppose what the, the the broader point for that would be, to play devil's advocate on that side, is that you don't have a person of Asian descent as part of your troupe. Well, we did the next year. We had Lena Cruz, and we right. had a sketch with her playing Kim Jong-un. 
and Simon Burke and Drew Forsyth playing North Korean generals who sounded like John Le Mesurier, <laughs> who were just being very, very English. And at one point she said, wait a minute, you guys don't look Korean to me. Well, I assure you, so we are very much on the inside. <laughs> and hang on, I'm, I'm not even Korean, I'm from the Philippines. Well, kind of vaguely. <laughs> what, you're saying all Asians look the same? No, 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 not at all, not at all. Um, and so we, we managed to subvert that whole thing. But, I mean, Lena was, it's an interesting point. She said, you know, I am, I am Filipino. In my career, I've played Vietnamese, Thai, Japanese, Chinese, and I've very rarely played a Filipino. Mm. Uh, and you think, yeah, that's how, well, for want of a better word, skin deep some of these things go. Mm. You still do a lot of drag as part of uh, Well, see, even drag I find questionable. Really? Yeah, I sometimes think. Why isn't drag ever included in this thing if you can't do that or you can't be Well, there? I suppose that's what I'm asking. I, I do. I do. I don't do it very often, but I'm doing it in this show. Uh, and Mandy Bishop's doing it as well. So we have reverse dress. She's playing a bloke. Uh, Andrew always does Pauline Hanson. But we do I sometimes think, I find it odd. And I think, does anyone ever ask women if they think the drag is such a good idea? Mm. Uh, and sometimes, particularly when some drag is grotesquery of, of what it means to be feminine. I, I, I would say that there's a a case for some feminists to not enjoy it mm. uh, and to not think it's great. But that seems to that seems to have escaped the censure of the um, moral guardians of the internet. Right. Well, I think we need to move on from this uh, trub <laughs> troubling. and uh, Yes, we'll, we'll edit all that well, out. Yes, all, all, all that. Yeah, I'll go through that with a fine tooth comb. That's anyway. the end of me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we're going to some more music in the world of Benjamin Britten. Why have we got this one? What is it? Well, uh, I like Benjamin Britten, and I was listening to um, Ian Grandage. I think it was Ian Grandage when he was... Um, artistic director of the Western Australian Festival and he had the Wasso Perth Festival he had the Wasso playing this and he was doing the commentary and he said the fugue which I think we're going to listen to he said this is one of the greatest pieces of orchestral writing ever and I thought he's right it's fantastic
The Fugue from Benjamin Britten's Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, one of the best pieces of music ever written. According orchestral. To, orchestral. Yeah. I do beg your pardon. Mm. The choice of my guest in conversation today, Jonathan Biggins. Uh, Jonathan, aside from the Wharf Review, the, the kind of the group stuff, you have done a number of one-man shows, or at least I'm thinking of The Gospel According to Paul. Yes, The Gospel According to Paul. It was my, um, I, I think it was my, you know, leaving the boy band in my solo career, <laughs> pursuing artistic <laughs> challenges. Uh, yes, I've done Keating many, many times in the review, and I thought, mm, this is probably worth expanding a bit, uh, which proved quite an exercise because it's one thing to do a five-minute sketch but then to do a 95-minute play. A monologue, um, basically, isn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was only me um, and some slides. <laughs> he had transparent you know, slides, which I think is a very nice little sort of low-tech analogue way to do it. And it kind of went really well. It went super well um, because he is a, fee- a figure that resonates, again, across the political spectrum and he has the huge fan base and they turned out in droves to um, to see him being recreated on stage. And even Mr Keating came along and saw it a couple of times. I bet he did. He did. I mean, he didn't see it as many times as... Um, the musical. Keating the musical, <laughs> which was basically just a love poem to him. <laughs> I was trying to avoid um, hagiography. Being too obsequious. <laughs> well, it's difficult, though, because um, if you're writing a character that, shall we say, is not given to self-criticism, as Mr Keating is, how do you get that in? Um, and we tried it a bit, but on the whole, I think it was a fairly... Um, and it went right back to, you know, your childhood. Went back from, And it was framed around the, the director, Arnie and him, he said, you've got to have a reason for doing this. Why is he here? Why is he talking? Uh, so it was framed around leadership and what leadership is. And, um, and I think anyone on any side of the political fence knew that Keating was a leader who did what he said he was going to do and had a, a, a moral and, and big picture vision that he tried to adhere to. Uh, and they were quite extraordinary in their reform, the Hawke-Keating government. Some of it's coming back to bite us now. You know, I suppose you could say globalisation, privatisation. Um, but then Mr Keating, in his defence, was, I only took it to a certain point. It was never meant to go beyond that. <laughs> of okay, course. Fair enough, yeah. Uh, so he's proved uh, very popular and uh, it's sitting in a container somewhere and can be dragged out at a moment's notice if there is a need. And I think, I mean, we only did two weeks in Melbourne, so we could easily go back there. Was oh, that all? Yeah, in the arts centre. But it, it, And they didn't think, oh, they thought, oh, will this sell? Yes, it did. Of course it did. Yeah. He's, he's the magic. I mean, with all respect to John Howard, I can't see a show about him having quite the same impact at the box office. No. And I was going to ask that, because we have the musical, we have your show. Keating has generated all of this uh, well, because he was stuff a in a way that the other Prime Ministers didn't. He could throw the switch to vaudeville. He was witty, he was amusing, he was opinionated, he was arrogant, he was a showman. Uh, and yet on the other side, he had this sort of very dark, melancholy, private side that you knew very little about. We only touched on briefly in the show. Uh, and he was into art and music, and he's the perfect vehicle to say funny, cutting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, wore his heart in his sleeve. And that's that's a recipe for show business. In the current, we've actually got a sketch with the three prime ministers um, this year in the show with Rudd, Keating and Gillard meeting at the ALP Federal Conference having a, you know, the after conference wine night. And Gillard says, oh, I've got a new cook, I've got a new book out. Uh, not now, not ever. And Keating says, what, is that one of your cookbooks? 
<laughs> so he can kind of get away with that. Yes, exactly. Whereas other people may not be able to. I mentioned in the introduction, you know, you've done some acting, you've done some directing. Um, mm. You keep coming back to the satire. You never wanted to pursue a more traditional acting career, for instance? Well, I think um, if I'd pursued a traditional acting career, I'd probably still be sitting at home waiting for the phone to go. It, if you can create your own work, it does help. Um, and, you know, we've managed to create... 25, 26 Wharf reviews. Um, I've done Keating. I've done other shows. I wrote a couple of plays. Uh, royalties is where it's at. 10% of gross. Don't be in it. Write it. That's, that's <laughs> the secret. So that that would be my advice to any aspiring young theatre practitioner. Don't be in it. You've got to turn up eight times a week. Um, but no, I do enjoy it. I, you know, I loved being in Travesties. We did Ying Tong for years. Yeah. That was great fun playing Peter Sellers. A couple of years ago, I did a Beckett. I did um, Crap's Last Tape at the Old Fitz. That was rather challenging. That's a bit of a stretch. And, yeah, I, I would quite happily, if someone wants to employ me, I'll turn up. So if anyone's got a you know gig, let me know. Yeah, I'll put your email address at the end of the show. <laughs> the But it is sort of as the opportunities just present themselves, obviously. You know yes, what? and and sometimes opportunities present themselves in a flurry and then others they don't. But the the good thing about... Creating your own work is mm. that you actually, and if you can build a brand, I mean, the Wharf Review is a brand. Mm. It's just unbelievable. Um, it makes it slightly easier to keep the wolf from the door. And you've written books. And the yes. books, is that, again, something that you took up one summer uh, because well, you had the, some free the time? writing, it, I used to write a column for the Good Weekend magazine for Fairfax for many years. And that started off when I was in a miniseries called Noah's Flood, which was a Hallmark miniseries shot in Melbourne with John Voigt, F. Murray Abrahams, Mary Steenbergen and all these people and, and some Australians filling out the roles. Uh, and it was quite an extraordinary experience and it was very amusing. And I wrote an article and submitted it to The Good Weekend and they took it. And then that became the columns and then the first book was a collection of columns and then I wrote a book called The 700 Habits of Highly Ineffective People, which seemed to resonate. Mm. Uh, and then I wrote a sequel to that and then did something else. Uh, and then The Gospel According to Paul has been turned into a book, still available in quality bookshops as we speak. But only quality ones. Well, I think <laughs> the remainder bins of quality bookshops. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's just been a, a bit of a mm. sideline. Uh, and it's it's quite fun to do. So, uh, over, you know, when you add it all up, I never consider myself a writer, but I suppose I would be. Mm. Well, you certainly write the show, as you said. 10 well, I know, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you put it like that, um, but I mean, maybe it's the relaxed way you're talking about it, and even the relaxed way you talk, sort of talk about the shows. But I, but I also get the sense that uh, you're just very casual about where the work's coming from and yeah. what are you going to do next, and yeah. you're not you're not having sleepless nights. Oh God, no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. I don't have sleepless nights. Um, I think it's. I mean, the industry, the the entertainment industry, was absolutely hammered by COVID. Hospitality, tourism and, and the entertainment industry were just devastated. Yeah. Um, but I was fortunate enough to have been in a position where I could have a buffer against that. Um, but a lot of performers and actors, and they couldn't even get JobKeeper or JobSeeker because they'd, you know, well, the contracts employed, didn't, yeah, yeah, they didn't yeah. have an ABN. I've got an ABN. And, and the government were throwing money at you. And it was just awful to see. And there is still a bit of reluctance amongst audiences to come back. It's gradually getting back there. But people are still a bit... And then you think, oh, my God, there's another wave coming. So oh, yes. I, I, I don't... You know. And 
as I said, you know, sometimes an older demographic are slightly hesitant to go back if they think there's going to be that sort of problem. I mean, everyone has been signalling the demise of live theatre since the globe was closed during the plague. I think that live performance actually is going to be the future because it is the only thing you cannot get on the internet. You can get a film version of it, but you cannot beat it. And and it's an experience. Like we went to the ensemble last night and saw The Caretaker. And you think, that's an extraordinary piece of writing and a great production, fantastic performances. And it was gripping. And you think, we're watching three guys on a little platform. Looks like a bed sit in London in the mm. 1950s or whatever. What is it? that still draws you to it and it was just it was magical and I, I just sat there thinking how could you even think how to write that what creative process spurred Harold Pinter to write such a bizarre play that's not really about anything mm. yet is about everything mm. uh, and I think you very rarely get that kind of wow from a TV or film I don't think yeah even Though, as you say, there are only two walls of the room there. There's only a chair. There's not... You know it's not real. Like, you know that yeah, these are Yeah, but you believe it is. And yeah. this, this is one of those productions that didn't remind you you're in a theatre constantly. They were prepared to take you to that world, mm. and you were just taken to it. Um, it's the same when you go and see orche orchestral music live. You think, this is extraordinary. These people are all brilliant musicians, and they're all playing together, and they're playing music that is top quality. And you think this is a level of excellence and the sound. Have you been to the new concert hall? Yes. It's unbelievable. Mm. And it's just like a revelation when you sit there and hear mm. it. Trouble is, it's a bit expensive. But, you know, that's a, a, a problem for another day is how to make things more affordable because mm. it's an expensive business. Yeah. If you want to pay all these people. It is indeed. Well, a little bit more music now and we're going to the genre of, uh, well, of chamber music from Ravel. Why, yes. why this one? Well, I I sometimes um, work for a group called Renaissance Tours who are the Art Gallery of New South Wales Society's travel organisers and I do theatre tours to New York and London. And they had a tour going to Europe and they said, oh, if you want to come along, you know, as one of our people, you can get a discount. So I thought, back it, I will. And we were in Aix-en-Provence and Christopher Lawrence had organised the music for this particular tour and he had a little string quartet come down from Geneva or something and we're in the Museum of the Aix-en-Provence in the courtyard in the evening and they played this and it just was a memorable night.
the unforgettable second movement of Ravel's String Quartet, performed there for us by the Australian String Quartet. That was the choice of my guest in conversation today, Jonathan Biggins, who, along with the Wharf Review, are looking for Albanese at the Seymour Centre until the 23rd of December. Uh, we haven't talked about your directing so, yeah. yeah. So again, is that just something that the opportunities came up and, and you decided, well, that sounds like fun. I'll do that. Yeah, that does sound like fun. Um, yes, and it, it covers a wide gamut. I've done um, quite a few shows for Monkey Bar, which is Children's Theatre, which is uh, interesting. Um, we did um, Pete the Sheep and Josephine Wants to Dance. And Josephine Wants to Dance was a great show because it was in collaboration with the Australian Ballet. And they gave us a choreographer called Tim Harbour. Mm. And he was fantastic and it was about a little kangaroo who wants to be a ballerina um, and dance in Swan Lake so we had four very talented casts led by Chloe Dallymore who when she turned up I said you sure you want to do a regional tour of children yeah love to and she it was just a, a lovely experience uh, and then at the other end of the spectrum um, I directed uh, the revival of Orpheus in the Underworld for mm. OA which Philip and I had written the libretto for when Ignatius Jones originally directed it uh, and then Noises Off for um, STC which was a fabulous experience because it's a very very funny play and again sometimes when you're doing the theatre I mean, theatre is only as strong as its weakest link, which makes it such a hit-and-miss affair. I mean, eight out of ten shows you can go to, you go, mm -hmm. But when it all pings, great designer, Julie Lynch, Mark Thompson, fantastic cast, and it just kind of worked. And one of the cast actually had been diagnosed with uh, throat cancer just before we started. In mm. fact, the first run through and full run in the, in the rehearsal room, he had to sit in a chair. So it was very touch-and-go whether he'd be able to perform. Luckily, it was treated, he was fine, and he did it. And his specialist came and saw it, and he said to him, there's something about going out and being supported by that gales of laughter and just being in a room with 500 people absolutely just lifting you up. And he said, I reckon that's what got me through my mm. um, recuperation. Wow. Uh, and he's completely fine now. There's an energy and a joy when things are all working and when an audience is just beside themselves uh, that's just fabulous to be in. And it's a great experience when you are a performer and you know you've got them uh, and you think, I could say anything. And they, <laughs> and they laugh. I mean, I really enjoyed that production of Noises Off. I, I thought it was absolutely sensational because mm. of, and this is where I think when, it, when you go and see uh, comedy plays what this managed to do was the, the timing I mean they say that comedy is all yeah. about timing and it was absolutely right it was tight it was it was on point is that something that you had to bring to it or did the cars kind of naturally um, do that noises off can notoriously blow out when people start indulging um, all farce I, I saw a farce in America recently called POTUS it started with them yelling and it went on yelling and they yelled yes. from beginning to end it, yeah it didn't start and build it was no a bit, it, did yeah. you see it yeah I saw it yeah, yeah. terrible well, it's, not good. Yeah, <laughs> because, goes because I had they an were entertaining just, 90 minutes. There was never any sense of, you, it's got to begin in reality. Yes. Farce has to begin in, in reality and then escalate. If it starts farcical, it's not a farce. No. So with noises off, it does very much start in that way and it's beautifully structured. It's a bit tricky, that last act, um, but you, and you had a cast who all knew that. And what was great, like someone like Josh McConville, the actor, who's not known for his comedy... He was hilarious. 
but he was just playing it dead straight and and that's the way to do it and the same with ying tong when we did the show about the goons which resonated extraordinarily well with audiences i mean even just pretending to be those four guys they loved it mm. um but again you have to play the moment play it straight play it for real mm. uh and don't signal I, I i hate signaling in the theater and i hate yelling in the theater and if people just come on and do it and talk to each other and not the audience takes care of itself really absolutely and as someone once said directing is 95 percent of the casting if you get the right casting and the other 95 percent is telling them how good they are all the time <laughs> and a director told me that so in the wharf review who's telling you how good you we are? all tell each other how good we are oh, I, I actually no so. we don't because we don't have a director i don't know how that works no. it kind of just happens by osmosis but i think again we've all worked together for so long and, and mandy bishop's now done well, how many she's done you, it just happens and and we all know that you keep it tight you keep it disciplined never let the audience get ahead of you so who are the younger comedians and satirists that are coming after you who you most admire? Uh, well, I don't know if they're younger. I, I think Sean McAuliffe is uh, one of the funniest people in Australia. Uh, he's world class. And I think he's very, very clever and uh, very amusing. And he does an excellent impression of Kenneth Williams, which endears me to him. I mean, it's hard because, I mean, The Chaser, they're all getting on. I, I don't really know many young satirists as such, and I don't. I mean, most people get their satire from online, like you know, Unnamed Bakuda Advocate, and all those sorts of things. Uh, so a lot of that happens. Everyone's a satirist now. I mean, as soon as something has happened, within thirty seconds, there are a million memes and funny things about it. Mm. Um, so, in the same way that anyone can write a novel now, anyone can make a film now, and I'll leave that to uh, the gentle listener to decide whether that's um, actually true or not. Well, Jonathan, it's been absolutely wonderful having you here, but before I let you go, you do have one more piece of music to introduce. Yes. Uh, this is um, Leonard Bernstein, who, in my opinion, wrote the greatest musical score of any music theatre piece, West Side Story, um, which is just an extraordinary work. Uh, he also wrote a fantastic version of Candide, which is not such a successful show because it just doesn't work. But the music is glorious. And the finale, uh, Make Our Garden Grow, uh, someone else, I think it was Melvin Morrow, once said that this is the greatest piece of musical theatre writing. So you've got your Benjamin Britten, you've got your Bernstein, two of the greats, and it's just, I think... Uh, it's one of those pieces when you think the world is terrible and life is not worth living, listen to this and you will want to get up in the morning. Jonathan Biggins, thank you so much for coming in today. My pleasure. Actor, writer, director, raconteur, Jonathan Biggins. In the 2021 Queen's Birthday Honours List, he was awarded a Medal of the Order of Australia for service to the performing arts through theatre. He's part of the Wharf Review, who are looking for Albanese at the Seymour Centre until the 23rd of December. Get along to seymourcentre.com for more information and for tickets. That's the program for today. Find us in your preferred podcast app by searching 2MBS In Conversation so you can listen to the program at a time most convenient to you. Plus, catch up with past editions too. I'm Simon Moore on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. We'll build a house and chop our wood and make a go